Whoever was the first to say, "'Tis better to give than to receive," obviously never was up for an Oscar. Now they're wonderful. They all have their Oscars. But are they happy? Hello, and welcome back to the Snub Club, the podcast where we talk about the movies that have the most Oscar knobs and no ones whatsoever. I'm your host, Danny Vincent, and I am built differently. That is a joke that just has to do with press in the news today when we're recording, and no one will get it when this episode's out and when they go back to it. I aim to please. You talking to me? You talking to me? <laughs> Stay Franco. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing the little, the little head tilt that he does. Uh, I'm Sarah. <laughs> I am indeed talking to you. I'm Caleb. I feel like I should clarify what my joke was about. It's just that someone asked Scorsese in the press for Kills of the Flower Room today about how Tarantino said he's going to quit after 10 movies. And they're like, are you sitting? And he's like, well, he's a writer. I'm not a writer. That's my really bad Scorsese impression. That wasn't me attempting to do a Scorsese impression. And so they asked, are you built differently? And he's like, I am. So the headline says, Scorsese says he's built differently. <laughs> so, okay. All right. But speaking of Martin Scorsese, at the 49th Academy Awards, there was a film with 10 nominations called Network. It won four. It won Best Actor for Peter Finch, Best Actress for Faye Dunaway, Best Supporting Actress for P- Beatrice Strait, and Best Original Screenplay. And there was another movie with 10 nominations. This was called Rocky. Rocky won three Oscars. Um, gotta say, also, this is, a, this is a really famous year for the Academy. Um, this is a very stacked year, because Network, Rocky, a couple others I'm going to mention are pretty much considered like stone-cold classics, just like within the canon. But anyway, Rocky wins Best Picture. Best Director for John G. Alvidson and Best Film Editing with eight nominations. Another one of these classics. All the President's Men. It wins four. It wins Best Supporting Actor for Jason Robards, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Sound, and Best Art Direction. Art Direction's a good win there. Anyway, uh, then with six nominations, there's a film called Bound for Glory. It wins two. It wins Best Adapted Score for, I always forget to write the Adapted Score Composer, Leonard Rosenman, uh, and then Best Cinematography. And then there were three films with four nominations in Owens. One of them is the 70s version of A Star is Born, which wins Best Original Song for a song called Evergreen, Love Theme from A Star is Born. And then there were two films with four nominations in Owens. The first of which is Martin Scorsese's and Paul Strader's Taxi Driver. Sarah, what was Taxi Driver nominated for? Um, it was nominated for Best Picture and lost to Rocky. Uh, Best Actor for Robert De Niro, who lost to Peter Finch in Network. Uh, De Niro has been nominated five more times as of this recording and won two. Uh, Best Supporting Actress for Jodie Foster who lost to Beatrice Strait for Network. Uh, She was also nominated for Nell in 1995 and has won two. Uh, And best score for Bernard Herrmann, who lost to Jerry Goldsmith for The Omen. This was a posthumous nomination since he died like 12 hours after he finished writing the score. 
Uh, he was nominated three more times, including for Citizen Kane, uh, and he won for All That Money Can Buy in 1942. And also in this year yes. as well, I believe. I just watched a documentary about Taxi Driver where um, the uh, Marty goes, he's like, yeah, I really loved what he did for the score, but then, you know, he also did a fantastic score for the Palmas, whatever he was nominated for, and you know, the Oscars, they kind of cancel each other out like that. I don't know why I keep doing my very bad Scorsese impression. It's really not that good. Um, but yeah, Taxi Driver. It's a film that, well, like it or hate it, it definitely is a film that has like its place in the canon, right? And I precursed that by saying, Caleb has warned me that he thinks it's a good chance I'm the only person who loved this movie. Um, now, I don't, I don't, we don't need to assume for Sarah. So, Sarah, what did you think of Taxi Driver? I'm going to have you start if that's okay. Well, I, I have a lot of issues with it. I think that I've seen a better version of this film called, um, what is it called? You were never really here? You were never really here. Because that is a great movie. Really here. I, I, I like that more than this, too. I would agree. Sorry, go on. I just, I find that, I don't know. I hate to be this person that's like, well, this is really problematic. But I feel like so much of this movie just does not work in today's landscape, which is okay. But I I don't know. I just have a lot of issues. I have a lot of issues with Marty in the movie. I have a lot of issues with just what the movie is setting up. I think that how people kind of look at the movie now and how it translates to other movies, I think is an issue because I don't think, I don't think that the movie, to be clear, is like, I don't think that Travis Bickle is set up to be a hero, but I think that it's become so kind of perverted over the years that it kind of dampens it a bit for me. Um, especially because of movies like The Joker, uh, for example. <laughs> we can't throw away all of Scorsese's filmography because it's hot well, the Joker movie, though. Please don't. They're <laughs> very different to me in the sense of where, what the direction of the character is. I just, I find that there's a lot of misogyny here. I find that there's a lot of problematic things. I find racism. And that's, not fine, but it makes sense in the context of the movie. However, I don't think that we interpret characters and themes like this anymore the way that we probably should have or the way that people did back then. And I just find it hard to look at it in a 2023 context without discussing these other aspects. I, yeah, I especially think will be interesting uh, if we can have expand on that, talking about comparing it to Linny, um, because I think both of these movies have like have a lot of content in them that is like like you said today we probably view a little bit differently than they were originally intended, but I think like for drastically different ends, and I think that might be an interesting thread to pull on. I don't think this is a bad movie. I understand its importance and I'm glad I watched it from like an academic sense 
I think that there is a lot here that makes it hard for me to engage with it. And I'm just not sure that I'm just not sure that with like having watched this within 24 hours and kind of having a resistance to meditations on violence and character studies like this, I'm not sure that I'll be able to dig too deep into like all the elements that work about it because my instinct is to go to all the elements that kind of repel me around the movie. Um, Some of those are content wise. Some of those are also just, I don't like all of the filmmaking decisions here. And um, I, I don't, I might focus more on those than, than the positive elements, but I don't want that to make it seem like I hate this movie or anything. I understand why it's a classic. I just think that there are certain elements that make this kind of a more unengaging uh, piece of art for me personally. I think, well, I have another podcast called Looking for the Ocean Pixar Journey, where we haven't got to this element yet of Pixar discussion. But one thing that always annoys me is when people try to say Pixar movie is mid-tier as if that's an insult. Because to me, a mid-tier Pixar movie is probably still 9 out of 10. Because they're all, most of them are still really dang good in my book. And the reason I bring all this up, because to me, Taxi Driver is a mid-tier Scorsese movie. It comes in at number 12 on my list. I'm looking at my list right now, figuring out like what the ratings would correspond to if I made this list right now. Because I make weird, my rating system is weird. And I see that the top nine would be five out of five movies. So Taxi Driver being a four out of five movie just means it's still a great movie. I think Taxi Driver is... Also, this is one thing I want to say also about my Scorsese list. This is kind of important. I think Martin Scorsese, in, at this point in his career, like in 1976, has already made a better movie than this. I think Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore is a five out of five movie. Um, whereas this isn't. I think, though, Taxi Driver, at the time, and I know this is why I kind of winced when you mentioned Lenny, not that people can see that, is I think Lenny is just a biopic that is somewhat engaging with maybe my main character is kind of a jerk. This is like so ahead of its time and so revolutionary in a way that I even like, I know I pointed to Five Easy Pieces, I'm like, look at Five Easy Pieces. You don't get Taxi Driver about this. I find this so much more sophisticated than what Five Easy Pieces is doing. Um, I find obviously the filmmaking here is, I think, Herman score. I think I wish I had the cinematographers listed for me. I think Marsha Lucas is editing. I think all this works together in such a wonderful, t- and of course, De Niro's performance at the center of the film. Everything here works so wonderfully together to create this one of a kind experience. And one thing I was saying to the person I watched this with yesterday was like, I love this movie very particularly in how it captures like that grimy New York you always hear about. This movie feels so grimy and disgusting but also never feels like it's being stylized other than like how it edits itself. And I'm like, this is such a cool game. And and you mentioned Joker. Joker tries to like get you to that feeling and it's still so artificial because obviously it is artificial. It's not like being shot on location, but like I watched this and I'm just like, this just feels like it's living in this disgusting world. And I, I don't love it. I, as I said, it's like, it's like on that four, four and a half star area to me, but like, I do love it. You know what I mean? I'm not, it's not like a perfect movie, but I just look at this and I'm like, ah, cinema. Like, I get why this is a movie that's influenced so many people for good and for bad, right? 
And this is where I could make a joke that I'm not going to make because I don't want to get on a Secret Service list. So I'm not going to make it. Uh, but, but If you know, you know. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I like taxi driving. But also, I'll say this, and I'm not, I'm not saying this to be like, well, I've seen the movie twice, so that makes me better than you. But it's going to sound like that. More specifically, I think, Sarah, because I know who you are, I know your taste. I don't think there's any, like, I don't, I think you want to watch this movie again, like, for years, you're going to have, like, the same basic, you'll probably like it less, I feel like, because I know who you are. And that's fine. I'm not, I feel like you're giving me a, I feel like I'm, <laughs> I'm just, just looking be, at you. I feel like, I, I feel like the way I'm saying that could be very much like, this is Sarah's taste and it's bad. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, I know what Sarah likes and I know, but Caleb, you said, like, I watched this 12 hours ago. I think very firmly, you watch this again in three or four years after, again, you've also told me before we recorded, you haven't seen as much Scorsese as you'd like to. And then you go back to this after more Scorsese. I like this more now in this watch than I watched it five years ago before I saw The Irishman. That's all I'm saying. So I worked my way through a lot of Scorsese right before The Irishman came out. And this kind of blended together where I was like, well, it's good, but like, I like After Hours more. I like, uh, what else did I see in that watch? I like, oh, well, it was mainly After Hours because this moved basically just above After Hours. I like After Hours more. And I also like, I like Casino more. And I do still like Casino more, right? But it's like, yeah. Um, I don't know. I think it's a great film. Even if it's not top tier Scorsese, it's still like such an influential film. And not just because it's influential, it's good. I still find it immensely watchable. And even like comparing it to something like, say, a recent Paul Schrader movie, like First Reformed or Card Counter, I find this so much more compelling. Part of that's a, maybe I shouldn't say this because those are the only two Schrader films I think. I think Scorsese is, in the, is a better filmmaker um, as someone who hasn't seen a lot of Schrader. But I also just find what Scorsese keeps his eye on is very good. Also, this is unrelated to my overall take, but I want to push back on something Sarah said very briefly. And I'll say, yeah, Scorsese's acting in the movie isn't great, but apparently the guy they had got sick that day. So he's like, oh, we got to shoot it. One of those things. His cameo was only supposed to be he's sitting on the steps. That's not what my issue was. Okay, well, then go my on. My issue is that he pulled a Tarantino just- and made him and said the N-word in it. Okay. Like, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not going to. Okay. Fair. I mean, I'll just, I'll just say this now. So we don't have to keep circling back to this scene. Um, it's obviously distracting for me in 2023 when Martin Scorsese just suddenly hops in the back of a taxi cab because I know who that is, but setting aside the circumstances leading up to it. I don't think that's an excuse for how bad of a performance he gives. He is so bad in that scene. I don't it was think he's bad in that scene at all. Oh, I, I think I really don't. But I also- like. I think that he is that character is supposed to be insufferable for um, Travis. I think that it ratchets it up to such an extreme degree that it becomes insufferable to anyone and like just completely distracts from the point of that scene. And I also don't think that's the, like a super engaging scene to begin with. So I think it was already coming out with a disadvantage. I think he's fine in it. Um, I understand Sarah's misgivings, but I don't know. It's the character and it's, uh, you know, okay, hey, here's the key difference. This is all say on it. Cause I really don't think we're the people who should be discussing this. The difference between this and Tarantino is Paul Schrader wrote this and Tarantino writes his own things. That's the only thing I'll say. But 
I also understand Sarah's misgivings, and I'm not going to defend it. You know, I'm not. But Taxi Driver, what do we do? This isn't really a plot movie. I feel like, you know, there, there are threads in this movie that you keep coming back to, right? You go back to the Palantine stuff where it's like, is he going to shoot the president? Uh, you go back to his stuff where he's dating Sybil Shepard, who disappears after 30 minutes and pops up again at the end. And then the Jodie Foster stuff that also kind of disappears near the end, too. Um, and then also I have to mention Harvey Keitel and his um, little um, pink coke, uh, coke fingernail. Great, guys. I'm giving you a lot of threads to pull out here. Pull at any yeah, of them. I'm, uh, I'm presenting okay. them all to you. Pull at one of them. <laughs> I'm going to pull at none of them. Um, I'm going to scream if you bring up Lenny. We, you no, I am. I, we will we'll have that conversation just because of how negatively you're reacting to this. Um, this movie, this movie's way better than Lenny. As no, I, I am Lenny. not saying I am not saying that they are comparable in quality. I am saying that they have a shared like they have a shared thread in how a modern audience would react to them. And I think we could talk about that. But uh, I agree. But okay, I know we're tabling discussion. I agree. But when we get to this, we need to talk about five easy pieces as well. We can talk about all three. Go on. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I'm fine bringing in anything that we have talked about into that discussion. This is, I do want to give a little bit of context for this veteran of Vietnam comes back is having trouble sleeping at night. And so he gets a job as a taxi driver so he can work the night shift. And he is obsessed with the dirtiness of the city and how that is both reflected in like the griminess that you were talking about visually, the griminess, but also then like this social uh, grime that comes with the uh, the city. And he says many times throughout, he's kind of a character defined by not knowing things. He loves to fall back on that defense when he comes up with a social faux pas. But he takes on a very apolitical position throughout a lot of the films. But it is clear that he has, while they may not be rooted in like traditional electoral politics, he has very clear like a political lens that he's looking through the world at. And it's a politics of disgust, which I think is interesting. And I think in the seventies, you get an interesting kind of transition and in the sixties, a little bit where like politics of disgust were very mainstream and accepted pre the civil rights movement. And then it started becoming a more coded thing with, uh, Nixon and following that other politicians. Um, and so you started having, we're not going to start talking about black people. We're going to start talking about welfare, welfare cre- queens and stuff like that um so i found i found that thread interesting how like you can see the veiled uh politics of disgust through this character who it's so internalized within him that he's not even aware it's politics yes and i think the film still makes it clear that even though yes that it's travis is a racist right like it's he's a racist he's a misogynist he is i was telling someone this i was like trav this is basically where if you point to like the stereotypical incel, but not like, you know, like a nerd incel, this is, this is it. This is Travis. And I don't know, like, yeah, I mean, I agree. I think it's interesting also that the movie doesn't shy away from like very specifically the stuff of Palatine and like the politics of Palatine and like how that relates to him dating someone at that office. But moreover, like how he's like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm definitely into that uh, cool stuff. But then he's like, then as soon as he actually can talk to Palatine, he's like, here are my politics. And it's like, the like it literally is just like, <laughs> there's no way to respond to that. It's your taxi driver telling, the one thing I want you to do when I get, you get elected is, I want you to clean up this city. It's disgusting. 
<laughs> and it leaves Palantine specifically vague enough that like his reaction to that is does he have a problem with these issues or does he have a problem that like Travis is saying them explicitly? Because all we really know about Palantine is that he's a populist. Yes. But other than that, it, or at least that's how he's presenting his campaign. But we never get into his I think, though, policies. you do get the vibe that he, at least to me, you're right, they don't have the right to say it, but the vibe I get specifically from Sybil Shepard, more so working for him, is that I don't think he is like, I think he's on the left, personally, just because of Sybil Shepard and Albert Brooks and how they talk about Travis, how they talk about issues. But also, you know, they're people working at a campaign office, so they're obviously going to be rooting for their guy in the most rose-tinted glasses anyway. So, but I also like that Albert Brooks is in this movie. I always forget he's in it. I'm like, ah, there's Albert Brooks. I liked all the banter between him and Sybil Shepard. That was fun. Yes. Albert Brooks. And another movie that I need to watch, the cinematic blind spot, so to say, that's inspired by this, that I'm sure Sarah would hate more than this. And that's not, again, I probably would hate it more than this too. I didn't know Finding Dory was a remake of Taxi Driver. Yeah, yeah. Ryan Gosling is so great in the role of Nemo. Sarah. What? What do you think? About? We're talking. Well, Travis's politics, or if you want to take another thread I threw out, or if you want to talk about one of the threads you brought up, um, movie, you can tear it apart. As much. I don't know. I don't have much to say about this one. What? <laughs> I don't know. I don't have anything to say. I don't. I don't know. I just. I find this movie to be so archetypal, and I feel like there are so many other movies that have the same idea, and I just don't. I don't know. I'm just not. I don't know. I just can't get behind a movie about a racist. I just can't. I. I think that the whole, you know, moral panic over the Joker, I feel like was, I don't know. I just feel like in however many years that this, you know, 50 or so years, I just feel like this character has not really evolved. I, you know, I just, I wish we could see like something more robust i guess i don't know i just feel like the joker to me is just like i know we're not talking about it. i mean i mean i know we don't watch the joker i just feel like the joker is so like copy and paste and which is which is by design but i just feel like but you have said though that another film that came out i believe i the same year or the year before the joker starring the same actors this does follow the tropes of taxi driver and is a better film right and that's you were never really here yeah i just think that it is a different lens as well. I think that you are never really here really isn't about rage. It's more about pain. And I think that Travis Bickle is not a character that's self-destructive. I think that he wants to be destructive. I think that him spoilers, I guess, but I think that him not dying at the end was probably like the best thing that ever happened to him because it's another opportunity to cause more destruction. And I think that, like with again i'm sorry with the joker i feel like it's the same kind of idea where it's not about internal struggle it's just about projecting your problems on everybody else well sure that's why i personally 
The one thing I remember revisiting this movie was I remember the ending of them going to the wall of the newspapers. Because I really, I like that ending a lot. I think this is a really smart ending. Uh, I think my whole thing, and I keep giving it credit for this, is that you're right that the archetypes that like the Joker or other examples I sure, like, I haven't seen Drive, but I'm fairly convinced I wouldn't love Drive. Um, I still should see it at some point. I shouldn't just talk about what I assume my opinion on a movie will be. Um, very possible I like it. I don't know. But I look at Taxi Driver as a film that comes out in 1976. And I think this is still like a big leap forward from Lenny and Five Easy Pieces in how it actually examines this character and how it gives it like this poetic ending in a way of like he probably like he he wanted to kill himself at the end of that shootout, but then he survives. And now you say it's the best thing ever. I think he, I think he at the moment thinks it, but I think he's also the type of person like I'm. He doesn't say this. Maybe this is reading too much into like this is how I view this character. But I think he's he views himself as a fraud. You know, he still freaks out at the end of seeing something in his window, in his mirror, uh, and you know he gets to survive and be a hero. And he knows he's not a hero. He knows he's trying to kill the president. And people throw that out just because he saved this girl. Which granted, he did save the girl. You know, like. I think it's an interesting complex ending that I really, really look at everything we've seen so far. And I'm like, I don't think anything has tried to like leave you with this weird feeling of unease that taxi driver does. And I think taxi driver is very successful at leaving you with that feeling of unease. I was going to wait to talk about the ending, but I guess we can, since we're there now, my idea with him trying to commit suicide is more just that he thinks he's going to die anyway. He was shot in the neck. And so he's trying to take an easy way out. And I think there is an importance to like his suicidal impotence, the fact that he can't. And that it's like kind of a weirdly, I don't know. I feel like it's almost comedic how he like goes through two guns. And, very funny. But go on. Sorry. Yeah. But, and I, I looked this up to see what other people thought at the end. Cause I, I didn't want to be like coming out just on an Island. Do y'all think that's the literal ending? Because I know a lot of people, and I think I would include myself in this, think that he dies in the shootout, and then his like vision with Sybil Shepard coming in, and he's back, and how he looks at the beginning of the movie is more of like a last imagining, uh, you know, like his ideal outcome. I personally think the movie means a lot more if it's real. Uh, I honestly never heard this interpretation. And I also watched the documentary right before us where Paul Schrader says that it actually happened. But authorial intent does not matter, obviously. that's my, And they've Scorsese doesn't Dune. comment on it either. So that's the whole thing. Well, they've talked about doing a sequel. So I think clearly Uber all the driver. people involved. Yes. Uh, <laughs> both both uh, um, Schrader and De Niro and Scorsese have all mentioned doing a sequel at some point. So I, I don't think they think it's like a death vision or anything. Yeah, I don't. I, I've i never viewed it. To me, the whole point is like, in a way, this whole movie's commenting, and I'm about to quote the Joker here, uh, society. This is like the peak. This is the beginning of like, this movie is about society, right? And even if they, like, I don't think Scorsese ever was that pretentious during the marketing of this film, honestly. It's just a movie where it's like, to me, the whole point of the ending is Travis is obvious. Like we've watched Travis be a terrible person, but not only in like his morals, but also in his competency. Like, you know, like he is also just a loser. We've watched him do that for like 90 minutes. And then he 
basically it's like I failed at killing a politician, so let me kill some like low life people and try to be a hero. And then he succeeds at that because these people have no security, basically. And then he gets a bunch of praise for this. And I don't think he feels it. And that's why I think he tries to kill himself. I think he I think he's like, that was nothing. I wanted to kill a guy who is like important. And these people aren't important. I don't think he really mean I think I think he has a savior complex over Jodie Foster's character, but I don't think he I don't think that is the priority. I think this is a I think it is a death wish thing where he's like he's going in, he's like, I want to be a hero, and he's not expecting to actually succeed at it. And then when he does, it's like well, I'm dying. You're right. He is dying anyway. I don't think he wa- he goes in there like wanting to kill himself. But I think him surviving and being like a hero is like, what? You know, like to him. And I do think he's going to live as a fraud. I think that is the ending is like. He's a hero to everyone, but like, is he? No, he's still the same person inside. He's still the same disgusting person inside. That's only going to see the streets as like this low life area where he's like, I hate the city of New York. I have to live here, blah, blah, blah. And he's never going to be better than a taxi driver, even if he is a hero taxi driver. I think either way, either interpretation, it's an unsatisfying ending for me. But following your reading of the ending, which I think is more interesting to discuss, how do you think that relates to the scene where he shoots the guy holding up the bodega? Because that's the other part where he is a hero in very big quotation marks. But yeah, I, uh, yeah, yeah, but like he has to run away immediately. So yeah, I remember right. This was a scene that when it popped up when I was watching it, I completely forgot it was in the movie. And actually, weirdly, it reminded me of um, it just because whenever I go to a bodega in a movie, I just think it's Tom Hardy and Venom. I look at that scene, and again, it's something where you point of it is also like he's a coward, right? He shot someone because he's racist, right? Really, that's why. Let's be real. He shot someone because he's a racist person. And he saw this black person there and he shot him. And then the, the person there is like, let me help you. Let me thank you. I'll take care of this. And then he runs away. I don't know. Like, how does this frame it? I get what you're saying. I don't really know how it frames with that ending. I think a lot of this movie is just life. It sounds it's a life happens movie, but it is a movie where it's just his life is escalating more and more. And he's just kind of like always the same person. And he's like, it's, it's, I hate to be like, it's a Paul Schrader movie. Cause that's, that means nothing to you guys. But it is like one of those movies where it's like, he monologues and it's like, what is going on in his head? And even as things change around him, he will never change because he is a terrible husk of a human being. I do think it's important that in that scene in the bodega, he gets to run away and he doesn't have to directly face the consequences. And like the scene never comes up again. It's would be a very incidental scene, but I do think like, I think it matters that first time he's, I mean, he probably killed some people in Vietnam, but the first time we're seeing him kill someone in the movie, even after he's practiced it is like a very spur of the moment thing. And he doesn't have time to like meditate on it. And he also doesn't get any, praise for it either like the the bodega owner thanks him or whatever but like he doesn't get to have any glory yes sarah what do you think i don't know i guess my question is who is this (laughs) movie who is this movie for i just feel like especially when i'm thinking about 2023 stick with me here 
I'm just thinking it's okay to have a film about unpleasant things. It's okay to have us like, it's okay to have these movies about society, but I feel like we never have evolved from this narrative. I feel like this movie has no empathy for Travis, which it's Paul Schrader's insert character. And there's other, there's another, there's other layers to it too. Like there's originally he wrote a lot of characters as being black, which is questionable to me, but I will say though, he does, he does outright. I don't know Paul Schrader. All right. He does though in the doc I saw immediately was like, yeah, once it was pointed out to me that I wrote it out the, um, the pimp specifically as black, I was like, okay, Harvey Keitel might work then. Cause I don't want to be that. I don't want to be socially irresponsible with this film. It's going to be relatively big because, you know, you got De Niro off of Godfather 2 and Scorsese off of Alice doesn't live here anymore. So it is a movie that's going to be pushed by a studio. But yes, I agree that it is sus that in the first draft it is like that. Well, and it just is. I mean. I don't want to. I just it sounds so reductive when I say it like this. I just feel like this is a type of script that Trader can write. And I and can get made and Scorsese can make and it just I don't know I just feel like <sighs> this is gonna sound so like douchey I guess but like like is this a warning is it like this could happen to anybody this could be somebody who lives by you or is it like hey maybe we should all be nicer to each other which to me feels like that's not the message whatsoever. But I feel like we've kind of passed the need for narratives like this, in my opinion. I just feel like it just feels so. Like, I don't fully. I don't. I don't disagree. That's. I. I don't know. I always come at these movies like this is a film that came out in 1976. What does this mean in 1976? And yes, of course. What does it mean today? But like when it comes down to it on the show. This is like a meta conversation. I'm sorry. I don't mean to get into meta conversation, but I am. When it comes down to the show, it's like, what should this have been nominated for at the 1976? What should have this won in 1976? Why does this film a big deal in 1976? And of course, with Taxi Driver, you're right. With Taxi Driver, it is one of these films, the rare film we get to, that is a bona fide, like, air quotes, classic. Because I know you guys aren't going to call it a classic, but it is a movie that's part of the canon, Right. It's a movie that they make you watch in film school sometimes. We didn't have to watch it in film school, but that's unusual. <laughs> I think this is a movie that they show a lot, right? So to me, yes, I agree. I don't know why we're making movies like The Joker. I don't know why we're making movies like Drive. And again, probably someone's listening to this and going like, Danny, you need to watch Drive. You probably would like it. But anyway, I, I'm sorry. I feel like I have to keep giving the disclaimer on Drive because there's a chance I like Drive. I don't know. But I think looking at this movie in 1976, I think this is a necessary leap forward in a way to have a movie that is, it doesn't even need to be specifically this movie, but I look at everything we watched at this point with, along with the movies of this era, I've seen up to this point. Um, and one could argue that the Godfather, and I haven't seen Godfather two, which is a big blind spot of mine, but the Godfather is one of these, like I, I describe this movie as a, you're staring at the cesspool of humanity type of movie, right? Travis Bickle is the absolute worst of us, right? Um, in many ways, many, many ways, countless ways. But 
I look at how just how grimy this movie is, how grimy he is, not even how he looks, but how he acts and how he thinks. And I'm like, I have not seen this in a movie prior to 1976. Even Five Easy Pieces or Lenny. Weird. We can we can move into that conversation if you want, Caleb. I don't think any of the either of those people are nearly as awful as Travis Bickle is. Yeah. I, or at least we don't get into the interiority of like Jack Nicholson and Five Easy Pieces. Yeah, I don't think we need to have a debate over like let's tier rank how bad these people are. Um, okay. fair, fair. I my my simple thought of bringing that up earlier was that in both this and Lenny, there are prolonged scenes that focus on slurs where there's like open misogyny, where there's open racism, things that we are, well, at least the three of us and I imagine the majority of the people listening, but definitely not everyone in America are less willing to put up with in our contemporary stuff. And I think for both good and bad, I think it's good that we have a certain social pushback to these things, especially in everyday life. I do think that there are times when it's appropriate to explore like this language and these topics and these ideas within a narrative. But I think it's interesting how, like, whether it's a good thing or not, how our like modern cultural context makes it hard to watch older things. And is that something we have to overcome? Is that something we accept? Does that show a progression in times? Does that show like a degression in our critical? Uh, our critical ability. Like, I don't think anyone out here should be giving a pass to racism and sexism and homophobia, all of which pop up in Taxi Driver. I think this is really interesting because one thing I want to say really quickly, and I I don't want to get too much into it because there's a very real chance the movie I'm about to mention will be our next Snub Club movie. And I think it's interesting because Killers of the Flower Moon just came out. I feel like we're still having kind of this conversation because the whole discourse around that film politically is, should Martin Scorsese made this movie about the Osage people or should have been given to an Osage filmmaker, right? That is like what the big discourse around it is. And I think the film even addresses it in some ways. But just because it addresses doesn't mean it's not still an issue, right? Um, and that's all I want to say is like, I think it's interesting to talk about this. Like, is it okay that Scorsese did, not Scorsese and Schrader, because it is Schrader's script. And I... I am always very apprehensive about like, giving a lot of credit to the scriptwriter, but because Schrader is such a clear voice, and Schrader has made so many movies since this where he's directed it, and they all do sound exactly like this movie does. Um, I do feel giving Schrader a lot of authorship of this film is fair. So I think that's a big point of discussion, too, because I think that was a big thing with Lenny, right? Where it's like, I think one of the most interesting scenes of this movie, I think there are a lot of interesting scenes in Taxi Driver. You, we did like, here's the interesting scene Taxi Driver. And even if it was just me, like, I find this scene fascinating. I, I feel like we could fill up a two-hour podcast and we talk like, here are all the... But one of the most fascinating scenes in this movie to me is a scene where they're at the diner and Travis is walking in and he stops and he just listens to them talk with all the slurs, all the awful things he says. And he looks, he looks awkward. He looks somewhat offended by it. But it's like, dude, like, <laughs> you've been saying all this in your head. But as soon as he's confronted by other people, he's like, this, it, you feel like he's like, this is part of the filth is that people are talking like this. And it's just so... It's such an interesting scene to me because it's like that's the only time this entire movie you see this from Travis. I think a part of it is because, you know, there is an African-American man doing it, too. And he's like, well, he shouldn't be allowed to say that, you know, like. But I think it's also like the other guys there. He, he looks so bothered by this conversation. I just think it's such an interesting scene in the movie. That's like. There is the cognitive dissonance 
of Travis. And I feel like that it, if any part of this movie, Sarah, actually feels like like this could be you, like going. So I think it's that scene, and I think that's so interesting to me because I think that is that's the only thing where like Travis weirdly comes off as human. I don't say human, like someone vaguely relatable, and I think it's scary that it's that scene in a way. I don't know. Maybe that's a weird thought to have. I think there are elements of Travis that I don't think he's just like a paragon of evil. Yes. I think like, cause you have to take in the cultural context of like, he is, he's come back from war with post-traumatic stress disorder in a country that doesn't have the uh, infrastructure to deal with that. And he's kind of just left out to find like self-medicate in his own way. Um, we do see him taking taking pills in this, although I don't think that's ever explicitly explained. Um, and so, like, I like his, his meal, real medic, his disgusting well, meal he makes. Where it's yes, like yeah. confectioner sugar and like syrup and like and bananas and else. stuff. Yeah, it's gross. But like his his self medication is his is his driving the taxi. It is his way of like um, trying to understand the world and himself and other people. So I, when you say he's like the worst of us, I'm not like I'm not saying that he's a good person, but I'm not sure that's his function in the film. I think there is supposed to be a part of him that is kind of an everyman, and it's like if there are, and I also think this is why we don't get much of his backstory. It's just like if there are the right circumstances and the right social factors, someone could be engineered to be like this, and that is not to take away from this fictional character's personal responsibility because obviously he is still doing terrible things. Um, but I do, I, I think there is, I think the film is more sympathetic to him than just saying he's like the worst of us. I, I, okay. I would agree. I feel like maybe me using that term is not fair. I think me using that term is more, again, not playing like Olympics of who is the worst person, but I think Travis is definitely the protagonist of any movie we've seen so far that we're supposed to be repulsed by the most. Maybe that's not fair. Maybe there was like something in the fifties that was really good that I forgot, but <laughs> uh, in cold blood is probably the only other. Oh yes. Fair, fair, fair. But I also think of course with traders, classic voiceover style method, whatever you want to call it. I think obviously that gives us more into Travis's head because we're literally inside his head, right? So, but um, I don't know. There's a lot, but I would agree. I think, but I also think I the reason I get so tempted not I don't want to say every man is because I think I think Sarah, you mentioned this. I don't think this movie is ever attempting to be like a cautionary thing, right? I don't think it is. I don't think it's not being like, look, you could become Travis or you could know a person like Travis. That guy who tries to talk to you outside of the your place of work, who's trying to like take you like that's what I mean to me is like Travis is always so apparently creepy. You know what I mean? Like or weird to people. And that's yeah. I think you well, know what I'm getting at. I don't know. I feel like it kind of is. I feel like it's telling a story of a specific time period with specific people in a specific situation. And, you know, there's a difference between telling Travis's story and telling, you know, and making it fully Iris's story. 
you know, there's a difference between, you know, like making Leonardo DiCaprio a character versus, you know, it's just like how these stories are told kind of, you know, it sets up the angle differently. I feel like if it was about Iris, if it was about, you know, that sort of story, it would be a completely different, it would be a completely different narrative. I I agree, uh, but here's my thing, and I don't want to like, I don't want to be like, well, actually, well, but I feel ahead. like it's gonna it's gonna come out the off that way anyway. Is Scorsese the movie he did before this? Alice doesn't live here anymore. Which she doesn't date a guy like Travis in that, but there is a big abusive boyfriend storyline in that film. So I I push back against that just because I feel like Scorsese probably thought at the time was like, well, I just did that, you know, like that was my last movie. So not that that makes this better, but I see the appeal to him to like, let me see the other side of that. I think the killers of flower move thing is a completely different discussion that I, I definitely, we should acknowledge, but I also think it's a very real possibility that movie doesn't win anything. So that's another reason why it's like, I don't know about Sarah, but I haven't seen the movie. So like, um, yeah, I, but it's okay. I mean, it's a good movie in my opinion. Coming from when white I get, man. Coming from white. When I get what? three hours, I'll sit down. Uh, what do what do y'all think about the camera in this movie? Because um, the camera has this habit of it likes to drift away. Um, I think probably famously, one of the scenes I knew about this before I went in is he's talking, he's trying to win Betsy, uh, Sybil Shepherd's character, back. So he's on the phone trying to talk to her and the camera uh, decides to drift away to the hallway so he's out of frame. Um, but it does this at several different points in the movie. And also there are just other elements of the camera that might be interesting to talk about. But what, what do you all think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think the camera work is, is pretty pretty class. I think, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of like camera work as a metaphor, so I appreciate, you know, the, the loneliness and isolation. Um, that is portrayed. I think I really liked a lot of the shots of the cab itself. Um, these kind of like, you know, extreme close-ups on different elements of the cab to kind of show this extension of this character. And, you know, it's kind of, to me, it's like we see the city and we see the garbage and we see all this stuff, but the cab is like the one consistent thing throughout. It's like, the taxi is a character in the film. I did not say that. <laughs> well, let me tell you, I'm pretty sure Marty did in the documentary. <laughs> or someone did. I don't death know. Death of the author, death uh, of the author. Uh, well, no, actually, I don't, I don't think, it was, I think it was the production designer or the cinematographer. I don't remember who said it. But um, what was I going to say? Oh, what I was saying to the person I watched this with was, um, now, Sarah, I actually want to ask you, and it's okay if you... It's obviously okay if you haven't. I don't know why I feel like I need to give that modifier. Is this the first Scorsese movie you've seen? I don't think so. Or have you seen... I think I've seen... Off the top of my head, I don't know. I think that I've seen at least 90% of Casino. Okay. Well, that's... Okay, Casino's a good... Ex- Casino works. What I was taken aback by, because I had forgotten this, and it's because, again, I watched... I've like binged a lot of Scorsese movies right before the Irishman came out. Like I saw Mean Streets, I saw this, I saw Alice's Living Room, I saw After Hours. 
I basically, I believe, made it all the way up to, I think, the Aviator is where I, yeah, I think the Aviator is where I cut off, and that's when I saw the Irishman. I was like, all right, well, I don't need ketchup anymore because I just saw the new one, right? Um, and I just, and I didn't see a couple of them. I have, you know, I, I told Caleb before, I haven't seen Cape Fear bringing up the dead. Um, but, and the reason I bring all this up is I've forgotten that in these early Scorsese movies, he still does like his whip pants. He still has like a lot of the camera moments in this are still in Killers of the Flower Moon, right? He has always had this signature style of how it doesn't matter who cinematographer is. They will move the camera in a certain way he wants to, them to move. And he will do things like what you mentioned, Caleb, with that pan over or like the claustrophobic shots inside the taxi. This is just something that is always an element. Specifically, I think of the taxi shots. That is all over After Hours, which is a, always, I always feel like whenever I talk about Scorsese, I always have to be like, watch After Hours because no one ever watches it and it's crazy. Um, <laughs> that's his like only like pure comedy. I, well, I haven't seen, I don't know, bring, I don't even know what Bringing Out the Dead is about. I'll be real. Uh, Paul Schrader wrote it. Ooh, okay. So probably not a comedy, right? <laughs> probably. Um, that's interesting. I didn't actually know that. So Cage with a Schrader script and Scorsese directing. Ooh. I do. I feel like that's gotta be my next one. I got like, as I said, I got like four left. Um, but that was really what I was taken back by. Is like, all these shots are like still the same way he shoots today. I think that's so cool that he came basically. I don't be like he came in the world fully formed because his filmmaking sensibilities have clearly evolved. Like, I'm very excited because Scorsese is a filmmaker that we will address at least three more times. Maybe four more times, depending on Killers of the Flower Moon. But he's a filmmaker we will return to at multiple points in his career where he will have evolved a ton in between films. Yeah, and I think that's what's interesting about this for me. Because I've seen six of his feature films and then his George Harrison doc and two of his shorts. Uh, Well, Big Shave and then the Bad Music video. And all of those are relatively modern uh, films. Um, I'm trying to think the oldest one I've seen, maybe The Aviator. Uh, or when you did gotta the watch some come of out? his. Uh... Yeah, sorry. Anyway. I, I should send you like Scorsese movies to watch. I like his older. I like Alice's Love Here a lot more a lot. Yeah, no. They're, uh, so most of, my, most of my experience with Scorsese has been his modern stuff, which means that. Whether people like that or not, he's it's him fully technically proficient in his craft. So I think, like when I come back to this, ninety percent of the camera work is great and excellent and serves the story well. Um, I also really liked the stuff with the cab. I feel like the shots, especially early on, of like the hood of the cab as it cruises down, it's like. Um, it's almost like a monster, like a shark in a shark movie or something like that, as it's kind of prowling the streets. But I do think that there are some times when he's trying to move the camera and just ba- that moving in and of itself, I understand that and I appreciate the significance, but I think the shots surrounding it don't build up to that move well enough. And I feel like there's almost a little bit still lack of sophistication around some of the camera moves. Um, and like I said, in very small parts of the movie, I think that hallway shot is excellent. Um, but I'm especially thinking of some of the shots in the uh, campaign headquarters and stuff. I feel like there's almost something holding those back. And I don't know if it's just 
lack of experience or if it's you know there wasn't time on the set to like really pay those off it could be a million things um but i found I think, that interesting while watching it i think also with scorsese and i bring this up because well i have a question for caleb because i know sarah you haven't seen it but i think casino is one of these movies but caleb have you seen the departed i forget yeah yeah i've seen the I departed think, i think the departed and casino both movies we'll never cover on this podcast those are both movies where the camera is constantly in movement right like oh like i love that's actually why i love the, that that's why i think before we recorded i was talking to caleb because sarah wasn't on yet i was talking to him about like these are my scorsese ranks that i just redid because i just saw killers of the flower moon and i was like the departed is by far his most fun movie because that movie just moves not only in editing but the camera will not stay still it's always motivated and I think Casino, if I remember right, is like that too. Um, I've only seen Casino once, whereas I've only seen the Departed once too. But Casino, I saw once, like at a house where I was half paying attention to it, and I really, I still really liked it. But like, but yeah. Um, anyway, I think the other thing to talk about though is Scorsese, and this is what my anecdote that I as I have to pull this up. Um, this is before the famous collaboration of Scorsese and Thelma Schoonmaker officially begins. Um, and Marsha Lucas, as, and I have an anecdote that I wanted to pull up where it, she actually did help on this film. Um, because the reason why she, she edited, I believe, um, I believe she edited his student film. Um, who's that knocking at my door? Or he, did she edit? Let me check really quick if she edited Mean Streets. Streets. I think she might have because she had an Oscar nom and then she wasn't allowed to edit anymore. No, she didn't edit Mean Streets. What did she get her Oscar nom for? I don't know. I should look that up. She had an Oscar nom, but then she wasn't allowed to work because of the bizarre rules um, that I have a lot of choice words for that I'm not going to say, but I feel like we can probably assume where I'm going with it. Oh, she was, oh, she was edited for, sorry, she was nominated for editing the Woodstock documentary in 1970. She was nominated for that. The only, I believe that's one of the only documentaries to get nominated for best editing, but in order to become a motion picture editor, aka a narrative film editor, at the time you had to have five years as an apprentice and three as an assistant to join the union. So, and Thelma was like, that's ridiculous. I've edited Who's That Knocking at My Door. Um, and, you know, and this Woodstock, I've been nominated for an Oscar. Um, but then they, she had to like pay the dues, basically, for the 70s, which is why she did not edit a film of his until Raging Bull. But she did do an uncredited pass on this because they didn't edit the film until they finished shooting. And then the contract, they finished shooting, I believe, like January 1st or 2nd. And their contract said, uh, we need to finish it cut by middle of February. So Scorsese was like, Thelma, can you please help? So she helped a bit on this. I just wanted to bring it up because she is such a pivotal, I think, I think to me, even though, you know, Scorsese's 70 stuff is so famous, I think I, it's so hard to me to talk about Scorsese without Thelma Shoemaker because they really do work in tandem so much together. And I think of Scorsese's movies as having snappy editing. And But anyway, this editing was done by Marsha Lucas and a couple other editors. And Marsha Lucas is obviously another iconic female editor. Iconic editor, really, in general. I say that about her and Marsha. I think... And we'll talk about Thelma, of course, because we're going to come back to... I think Thelma Shoemaker is probably the greatest film editor to ever live. Uh, like, I feel very confident in me saying that, having watched a lot of Scorsese movies and a lot of films that she edited about Scorsese. She's one of the greatest to ever live, if not the greatest. 
But yeah, what do we think about? I feel like the editing here is still really good, and I still feel that Scorsese. I think there's an edit here that is one of the most iconic edits of early Scorsese, if not the seventies, and that's during the. Um, it's right before the "You're talking to me, you're talking to me," and it's like it doubles back on something um, De Niro is saying to himself, and it's like a jump cut back to like five seconds earlier, but it's a different take. It's an incredible cut, and it's like it feels very weird and noticeable. But it's also immediately filled with so much like, okay, I don't know. I don't know what the intent is there, but it's obviously not a mistake, right? Such an interesting cut to me. And I think the movie's full of these cool cuts like that. I mean, not, to me, not specifically one, but to me, that was just like he was rehearsing his manifesto. So exactly. he just was like, uh, let me think about it for a bit. I think that that was <laughs> yeah. the intent was but, relayed. Exactly. But that, uh, yeah, you're right. You're right. I just didn't. You're correct. But my point is, is like, that's just done for the edit, right? And it's such a beautiful cut. Ugh. I like the editing of this movie. I think the thing with the editing, and it also gets into the scripting of the movie, I think it's brought to the fore with the editing, is that this is a type of movie where it's very important that you never spend too much time with, uh, with Travis because you can't... I don't think this movie works if you see him uh, like in between like the movement in between moments. I feel like you have to cut around his reality quite a bit because he's not perceiving his whole reality. And so to do that, you have to, um, you have to make your segments pretty, pretty quick, but also you have to have unreliable moments in the editing like that, um, like that cut during that, uh, sequence. I'm trying to, th- sorry, I want to get to, there's a lot of things here I want to get to, and I know we're like running over time, and I'm the one who's like, being like, taxi driver, taxi driver, taxi driver. <laughs> but I don't know, I could talk about the music, but maybe one of you guys will pick the music for the win, so maybe I'll hold off. But I want to talk about the cast a bit besides De Niro, because um, De Niro obviously is De Niro. I specifically, I don't know, anyone you want to talk about here, guys? I, I guess I don't need to, but like, I think, talk about Jodie Foster, we can talk about Albert Brooks, we can talk about Harvey Keitel and his coke nail. We could talk about uh, Sybil Shepherd. Uh, we didn't talk about, like, to me, one of the most iconic scenes of this movie is, uh, of course, <laughs> when De Niro gets all, Travis gets all dressed up and dollied up to take her out on a nice date and he takes her to the porno theater. Like, stuff like that. I don't know. A lot of stuff we could talk about here. I, I, yeah. I present the pieces to you guys because I could talk about everything for hours. Um, the two characters I think are interesting because I think all the performance here are good. I don't think there's really too much bad to talk about, but also like once you get, I don't think there's a standout besides De Niro. Um, so it's hard to, it's hard to, since I can't, we don't have time to talk about all of them. It's hard to talk about some of them, but the two that do stick out to me, uh, just as interesting moments is when Peter Boyle's character, um, Travis kind of comes to him to try to confide in him and like Boyle gives advice, but it is clearly he is not, uh, he doesn't fully understand the extent of what Travis is telling him. And also he doesn't have like, even if he did, he is, he's a taxi driver. He's not like the person that um, he's not even a real peer. He's just like a coworker. And so like, he isn't equipped to handle it. I feel like, Peter Boyle plays that off really well. Um, and then I really, I like the scene where 
uh, Travis buys the gun. And uh, I think that was Stephen Price, who I've never heard of before. Um, but just this really weird, weedy kind of character that's a good actor. One character scene. Yeah. Yeah. One, yeah, and yeah. That's, that's when the character. movie, I, if I had to pick one scene where the movie is fully working for me, it is that scene. Um, just no reservations. I think that handles it really well. And a big part of that is a definitely Price's performance where he is he is like doing the full salesman thing of pitching pitching uh travis the idea of the product more than the actual product and it's clear he does not care about what the result of his this sale is i want to shout out one of her one scene person unless sarah you want to talk about any actors do you no okay because I am now shocked to see this is like his only real credit because he has one other film where he played a role that's just labeled mayor and it's like a filled. I think I think Leonard Harris is very Leonard Harris plays Palatine. I think he's very interesting in like his once he has like one his two scenes really, but he has like one scene really with Travis. And I think it's a very compelling performance for one role. Yeah, that's all I want to say. It's like this guy's good. Um, and then I wish I don't know the name because is he the personnel officer you think according to Wiki? I think the guy who plays the Secret Service agent is also very good. Um, this is just a movie with a lot of great bit roles. Um, and I do think Jodie Foster's good in this, but I also... I don't know. I don't want to be like, I don't get it. But it's one of those things where it's like, I always heard you know she was nominated for this, and I'm like, I think Sybil Shepard has a more compelling supporting actress role here. I think it's the, the it's, spectacle it's of... the shock seeing of it. it. Yeah, the shock value. Do you guys know the character the... The her character the the person the character is based on plays her friend. I did know that, which kind of messed up, but whatever. Um, yeah. The interesting anecdote I know about this is that Martin Scorsese had trouble talking to Jodie Foster, and so he would tell De Niro his uh, directions, and so and De Niro would convey them to Foster. Yes. Which, man. <laughs> Just seems like a really weird thing to do. Well, but De Niro, the doc got it. I thought this was really fascinating. The doc, Jodie Foster, the documentary I saw was made in like the 90s. So Jodie Foster's like, you know, post silence. Like this is Jodie Foster, as we know her, like reflecting on Taxi Driver. She talked about how to rehearse what they would do was Robert De Niro would just take her out to breakfast every morning of the shoot. And initially De Niro would say nothing. And so she would have to like entertain herself at this breakfast place. But then, like, after two weeks or so, she was just insanely comfortable with him, right? Because it's just like, this guy's just letting me do my own thing in front of him. And then they would rehearse the scenes together. And then he would start improvising after that. And she's like, that's how I learned the way to be a great improviser is to know the actual script. And I was like, that's such an interesting anecdote about how De Niro worked. Because De Niro, you know, he is a method actor, but he doesn't seem like, like I don't want to be like, he seems, he seems like an okay guy. Maybe he's not. Um but in this point in time, he seems like compared to some of the other method actors at this time, it seems like he he knew how to work with Jodie Foster, right? And that's actually a really hard skill to do is to work with like a young actor. Yeah. So whether really whether whether he's a grand scale good guy or whatever, like who cares? But yeah. Um, just in terms of is he a jerk when it comes to method acting? Is he Jared Leto? Is he that one guy from Succession? Probably. Brian Cox. Oh, Logan Roy. Sorry. Logan Roy. Yeah. No, no, no! You're thinking of Jeremy Strong. Sorry, I got, I got. I, I don't, yeah, I don't. Know. No, no, I was saying Brian. Cox. I read the. Op-ed, I was saying but... old guy. You're talking about Jeremy Strong. Sorry. Yeah, whoever the op-ed was written about. Um, yes. <laughs> the op-ed. Um, 
Okay. I feel like you guys want to wrap up, but I won't keep us here longer. Um, although I want to say one last thing, which is I like cinematography. It's pretty. But, oh, we kind of mentioned, I kind of even mentioned that already. I don't know why I said that. We talked about the cinematography already. Sarah? Oh, I'm sorry I do. about this. Oh, sorry. Caleb, go. No, um, I, we've gone over time, but I was just curious. Are there other films that are meditations on violence? I know you brought up You Were Never Really Here earlier, as that oh. directly relates to this film. But even just branching out, are there other interesting character pieces that are kind of meditations on violence and violent uh, individuals? I, mean, I point to the card counter recently. I actually really enjoyed the card counter. Let's go to the... Uh, Let's go to the letterbox uh, related films. Wow. Did you see uh, did American you see Psycho's Gardner? listed in Nightcrawler? American Psycho, American Psycho I like, was the one I, like I was going to bring movies. up. movies. I did see kind of the influence with American Psycho. I will say there was also kind of a subgenre of this type of movie, I think, in the early 2000s, post Columbine, because um, you had like Elephant and that type of, um, those type of movies. Yeah. And I think um, about like I I think even actually recently would not really actually I'm on the letterbox page I see this movie and um I don't necessarily compare this text here but it is the same like repulsive main character the five bloods it's not the same exact movie yeah it's obviously dealing with a lot of different ideas but I'm like oh there's one movie where you really get in the head of this like awful person but the difference is with that movie it makes very clear how that person came to be compared to like this where it's like as you said kind of a mystery you also but, get into other characters heads as well which i think distinguishes oh, yeah, yeah. it from um because yeah american psycho is like my go-to um and yeah, i think, I think that's american just psycho it, and nightcrawler are two other recent ones besides you were never really here that really yeah. popped in my head american psycho just exaggerates it so much and like it's funny funny movie it is is very funny in a way like i read the book last year and it's just like man this book is such like a such like it drags you down constantly and the movie is able to able to like pull out the dark humor in it a little bit more but also like because of that have a much more biting critique of the character i also think bronson's very interesting um it's the only nicholas winding reffin movie i really like and I think that's just because Tom Hardy's doing a silly voice. But I, I do think there's also something where it's like the violent impulse in this man who like isn't cruel. Like his violence is rarely cruel. It's just almost instinctual. And how does a society deal with that? I mean, I also think you want to look at stuff like that from Scorsese and Schrader. I already mentioned Schrader recently. You know, he did... First Reformed and Card Counter. Card Counter is really good for that violence because First Reformed, it's a priest. So not really the same thing. Um, and then I opened up Scorsese and I'm like, oh, well, Raging Bull kind of qualifies. Wolf of Wall Street is a kind of violence, I think. I think because, Sarah, you kept, kept bringing up Joker, which is a bad example of this. I think the real movie Joker rips off is the King of Comedy, which is a fantastic movie, um, in my opinion. I have my opinion. But yeah, I think, you know, Scorsese... And Schrader are both coming back to this well several times. So also kind of the prisoners or prisoners, kind of. But I think it's more nihilistic. Well, it, That's more like the human condition. Because I, I think the thing to me about prisoners is because to bring up Villeneuve for a second, I think there are two directors, and I think Sarah, correct me if I'm wrong. I, but I feel like these are the two directors that I would label the film bro directors, and that's Scorsese and David Fincher. 
And to me, Prisoners is much more riffing off of Fincher. So. Villeneuve is also... I tolerate Villeneuve. Villeneuve has become one, but at the time... He has some... But at the time, I don't think he was, though. And I also feel like I got a shout out, and I mentioned a lot in this episode, and I've given the caveat I haven't seen it. I hear about Drive a lot. I don't know if it's good or not. <laughs> but yeah, I think the other big film board director is Tarantino, but that's a different conversation. So, well, Scorsese's built different. So. That's true. <laughs> he, is. he is. Someone got me. Re- sorry, we can move. I'm, I'm, someone got me so annoyed this earlier today because they were like. They were reviewing Killers of Farm, and like, I don't care if you like it or dislike it, whatever. I, you know, I don't get mad about this stuff. But they were like, Marty's got to have someone else write the script next time. I was like, really? Martin Scorsese, who, like, this is the first script he's, like, got a credit on in, like, 15 years. You know, like, he doesn't write it off. Like, don't, don't, don't condes. Like, I, I know Martin Scorsese, he doesn't need my defending, but it's like, he doesn't really write his own scripts often. So, he's built different. All right. Anyway, Sarah. Yeah. Sorry we had to do this episode. We'll have to do more Scorsese down the road. But I think the other ones are more interesting. Well, one of them is the one I actually don't like that I've seen. So, But the other two should be more interesting. Um, although one of them, of course, I don't use, everyone knows this. The Irishman is the one we always refer to when we start this podcast. That one's going to be long. But anyway, this one. What was Taxi Driver nominated for? Um, best Picture, Best Actor for Robert De Niro. Best Supporting Actress for Jodie Foster, and Best Original Score. First off, let me say, I'm really glad that our order is our order, because this means that when I give in a nomination, I have so many nominations I could give. So, after two years, I can pick one that you don't pick. Whereas, I, anyway. Um, I want to give a little shout out before I say my pick, because I think we're all going to pick the same thing. Maybe I'm wrong. But Herman's score is really cool here. Um, Scorsese doesn't actually usually work with a composer, and at least when the ones they don't usually stand out the way this one does. I, I like the score here a lot, but it's De Niro. <laughs> it's, it's Robert De Niro. This is this is one of the all time great performances of De Niro, and this is it's really hard to argue against like it winning. Other than of course it went against Peter Finch Network, but we don't care about the competition, right? We just say which of these is the best, and it's De Niro. Yeah. Um, well, I'm going to pick Jodie Foster, actually, so um, okay. I just like Jodie Foster. It's okay. Like, she's Both De Niro and Jodie Foster have two Oscars, so we can give them both a third. She deserves Oscar. it. You know, just give it to her. <laughs> um, and I'm going to give it best original score uh, because cool. that was probably the technical element that uh, I was most invested in, and I think it really um, helped set the tone and the atmosphere for the movie. Do you want um, an anecdote about the score from the doc? Sure. The last thing Bernard Herman ever said as direction of a score was, turned in the score, they play the last scene where Travis looks in the mirror and originally it's just a sting. And they're like, that doesn't work at all. He's like, oh, I'm sorry. Play it. Play that track in reverse. And that's why the sting sounds very weird at the end when he notices the thing in the mirror. That's the last thing Bernard Herman said to this team before he like died that night in his sleep or whatever, however he died. So. He was murdered. No. Dun, dun, dun. How actually, did Herman die? He was very well, old. No, they, he, was he, very was, sick. he was sick. Yeah. Yeah. He was 64. He's not super old. Yeah. That's, yeah, he that's was actually sick. not that old. Yeah. 
What was he um, sick of? I'm curious what he died of. Well, while uh, you look that up, I'm going to give it uh, a nomination for editing because the editing is pretty good. Heart attack. Yes. Good editing. I concur. Um, I'm going to give it cinema. Not my choice, but I concur that it has good editing. Sorry. I'm going to give it cinematography. Never a good choice. Um, I'm going to give it then. A lot of great options here. I don't want to give it to another acting performance, even though Harvey Keitel and his pink coke nail is very tempting. Um, but I'm even trying to think what actor would I give it? Maybe Sybil Shepherd, but I don't want to give it acting. And as tempted as I am to give it to Scorsese as a director, oh, you know what? Okay, there's an obvious choice here, and you guys are going to be annoyed by it. Um, but I'm also like, like Scorsese is an option. I was going to give it production design because I think the taxi rig, the taxi is obviously a piece of production design because I had to figure a way to get the camera in there. And then I think the movie theater, I think a lot of the sets on this movie are beautiful. That said, even if we don't like it, parts of it, this is probably one of the most influential scripts ever written. Um, and I think it, for me, this holds up a lot. And moreover, I say, I like to look at 1976. I think this is a very, very original screenplay. I think it should be nominated for Best Original Screenplay for Paul Schrader. I think it's insane Paul Schrader, I believe, didn't get... I should look this up before I say this. Actually, hold on, hold on. I think I was like, Paul Schrader hasn't got a screenplay nomination until First Reformed. But um, I'm not going to check that, because I think he might have got one for Mishima. Um, but let me check very quickly. Yes, he didn't get a nomination in ra- writing until First Reformed, which is insane. 2017. Mm. So, I think him getting a nomination for... This is pretty good. And also, Sarah, do you remember the, uh, this is, I'm just quizzing you because I think Caleb would know this answer. Do you know the other, because I mentioned Bringing Out the Dead, do you know the other two Scorsese movies he wrote or co-wrote? There's only one of them no. I think is interesting. No, do I Caleb? don't. I'm sure if I slowed down the episode, I could think of them, but uh, they don't come to the top of my head. Well, Raging Bull, but that's not the one I was going to bring up, is, I forgot this one, because this is a Movie that should not work at all, but I really like it. As, again, among Scorsese. Last Temptation of Christ is written by Paul Schrader, and it's very really? obviously written by Paul Schrader. Like, I, I, so I was like, oh, yeah, of course. Oh, you know what? Bringing up Last Temptation of Christ, because we're never going to bring it up again on the podcast. Actually, that's not true. One of our movies might bring up Last Temptation of Christ, but I did mention earlier, I don't usually know Scorsese scores. That's dumb. What am I talking about? Peter Gabriel's score in Last Temptation of Christ is incredible. Like, absolutely phenomenal score. That's um, probably the next Scorsese I need to watch, just because it it very much plays into my interests. Well, I will give you good news that of the upcoming Scorsese's on our list, I do think one of them is one that you will definitely be excited to watch. It would be funny um, if Paul Schrader wrote Hugo. <laughs> Imagine Hugo doing the narration. <laughs> Every day I walk in this, <laughs> this train station. What? No, no, no. The straighter version of Hugo is from Sacha Baron Cohen's perspective. I was like, about to say, it's the inspectors. He's it. <laughs> like, ever since I lost my leg. <laughs> All right. You guys want to know what we're doing next time? Yes, please. All right. Now, Sarah, yes. I will, if you want to announce it, I'll let you announce it. Because this is a monumental one for the show. Okay, well, I'm not doing I'm not doing I feel like that's so lame. Oh, Sarah gets, she gets to say the one thing 
She gets to say, <laughs> oh, it's seven beauties because, oh, first woman director. First woman nominated drum for director. Roll, drum roll, put the drum roll in here. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Sorry, I am lame. Um, This is seven beauties next time. The other film nominated for four nominations with no wins. This is our first female directed film. Is it? I, I legitimately don't have it open in front of me. I'm like, possibly our only one? Sure. It's definitely not our only one. Okay, okay. I couldn't remember another one. But it's de- no, it's definitely our first one. It is, I believe, the first... I'm going to double check this before. I keep going like, I should check this stuff before I say it. Uh, she is this, uh, Lena Ortmuller. I probably butchered her name, but I have a, two weeks to figure it out. She's the first woman to be nominated for Best Director. Yes, that is I what I said. Is. Oh, I thought you said it was our first snuff club movie. I'm sorry. My bad. I misunderstood. So this is an Italian movie? It's yes. our, yeah, first foreign film as well. Okay. Yes. Well, first non-English language film. Yeah. Yes. Which is interesting to me that a... Now I'm very curious, and I'm going to look at right now what one foreign film, because that is weird that I'm going to get nominated for Best Director and foreign film and not win foreign um, film. Was this still when countries were selecting, or at this point? I don't. I don't know. The, we can look into that before. Like, okay. I have no idea what the history of how the foreign language category worked. Country, I don't know. Uh, one, that's interesting. The country that won is the very Ivory interesting. Coast. The Ivory Coast. Oh, is um, what? What? Uh, this is a film from Italy, but the Ivory Coast is a film that we will. Um, well, that beat it. I'm very curious because I've never heard of this film. I've never heard of Seven Beauties either, really. But yeah, that's so interesting. This is the movie. Well, now I'm like, well, this is the only this this country. It's their only ever Oscar win. Um, so I don't want to. Again, we don't take it away, but it's like, ooh, well, that's interesting. I think they just didn't want to give it to a woman. We'll see. We'll see how Seven Beauties holds up next time on the Snub Club. All right, I'm Danny Vincent. This world full of filth and disgusting stuff. And you can find my abhorrent film opinions on Letterboxd at Blank Mints, but you shouldn't even shouldn't even look at those. You shouldn't even look at me. It's disgusting. You can also listen to my other podcast where I co-hosted with Mark Young, a man who's very, very tall and makes me feel very, very inferior, much like the people I pass on the streets. It's a show about Pixar, something, the one, one source of color in this terrible, terrible grayscale world. I'm Caleb. You can find me at Caleb from the real world on Instagram and YouTube. From there, you can find my litany of other podcasts, Hot Trash Unlimited, Star Wars Therapy, and All New 52, which I do with our editor, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Joe, if you could drive, would you drive for Uber or Lyft? Uber. Sarah, what about you? What's your answer? Do you have a better question for him, Sarah? Well, first of all, I can drive. Second of all, I would not do either of those things because I'm a woman. That's fair. <laughs> Anyways, no, I don't have a better question. What am I? What am I, the question guy? Why do I always have to come up with a question? You talking, talking to me? You talking to her? <laughs> 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 you can find me on Letterboxd, S-G-K-S-S-G-E-K-Y. You can find me on Instagram, S-G-K-29. 
You can find the Snub Club on Facebook, the Snub Club, Instagram, Snub Club Podcast, X Snub Club Pod. All right. Join us next time for not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, but seven beauties. Okay, bye.